Moses has gone up to Mount Sinai to speak with God and to receive the tablets of the law and the oral law. The people remain below in the Sinai wilderness. The days go by and the people begin to wonder when Moses is going to return. We do not know what has become of him, they say. And the mood of the people begins to change, though the text doesn't exactly say how or why. Maybe the people are beginning to feel the freedom that comes when there's no established authority, like kids in grade five when the substitute teacher comes. Maybe they are anxious about their future and want to try to create security and stability by creating a God. Maybe they are annoyed at Moses for leaving them and they want to act out that by rebelling and doing exactly what he has told them not to do. In any event, the people fashion a golden calf and they worship it and offer sacrifice to it in violation of the commandment against idolatry which Moses has given them just a few weeks before. The passage is interesting for a number of reasons that we don't need to explore this morning. It tells us about how people behave when they're left to their own devices. It tells us something about the appeals of idolatry. It's a wonderful case study in very bad leadership because the high priest Aaron enables the whole enterprise. But let me draw your attention away from these very interesting questions of human nature and leadership to something of huge importance in the passage. After the people worship their golden calf, God tells Moses, that he is so disgusted with this idolatry that he is determined to destroy Israel. With great confidence in Moses, God declares that he is going to replace the house of Israel with the house of Moses. But not for a moment does Moses consider allowing his own offspring to replace Israel. He is totally identified with Israel. In fact, a few verses after this morning's passage, he says that if Israel is to be blotted out, Moses himself will insist on being blotted out with them. In other words, if Israel is not to be God's people, then no one will be God's people. Moses reminds God of the promises he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to make of their descendants a great nation. In verse 30, a few verses again after today's reading, Moses speaks of his intercession as making atonement. And God indeed changes his mind. In all the Old Testament, Moses' successful intercession with God to save his people is the most important type or prefiguring of Christ's intercession with God when he says on the cross, Father, forgive them. This is more than an interesting literary observation. I want to tell you why I think that's so important, and I'm going to begin to do that by telling a story. In 1957, I entered junior high school and uh, among the many things uh, that changed for me uh, when I entered junior high school was that every day we had physical education and the boys went to the boys' gym and we put on our gym clothes and we did whatever we did that day. We did calisthenics or we climbed ropes or we ran a mile or we played soccer and then we took a shower in the big shower room and we um, put on our street clothes and went to our next class. But one kid never took a shower, and almost nobody knew why that was. Mike Freed never took a shower. So people wondered why that was. Was he shy? Was he sexually repressed? Did he have some terrible physical deformity under his clothes he didn't want anybody to know about? I'll tell you why Mike Freed did not take a shower. Mike Freed was Jewish, 
And from a very early age, he'd had a nightmare uh, several times a week where he, as a little Jewish boy, was being herded with other boys and girls and men and women of all ages into a big shower room, and the doors were locked, and gas began coming out of the shower heads, and people began screaming and trying to claw their way out of the shower room. And Mike Fried would wake up in a cold sweat, screaming along with them. And when in grade seven we went to see that shower room for the first day, Mike knew that he was not going to enter that shower room. And he went to Coach Johnson and told him why. And Coach said, you will never have to go in that shower room. So I knew something about that. I didn't know much about the Holocaust before that, but I began to know that. And some Christian boys and girls were taught, I know, uh, as they grew up, that Jews were bad people. Christendom taught that Jews were perpetrators and shysters and scalawags and Christ killers. I knew Jews as friends whose people had for centuries and in the recent decade been marginalized and victimized by Christians. And maybe more than anything else, although there were certainly other things too, the disconnect between how my Christian teachers understood Jews and how I experienced Jews myself made me question everything the church taught me. On the one hand, everyone seemed to kind of know in theory that Jesus was Jewish. When I was in high school, uh, an outrageously pretty Jewish girl named Liz Mandelson was chosen by my church Sunday school Christmas pageant to play the role of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And uh, my parents laughed and said that finally the church had got it right. So in theory, we knew that Jesus was Jewish, but in the pictures in my Bible, and in the stained glass windows, and in the sermons, and in our theology, Jesus didn't look Jewish at all. When I grew up, the picture of Jesus that everybody knew was the one by Warner Salmon, the head of Christ, the most influential devotional portrait ever created. Half a billion um, reproductions of it, at least in history. You saw it everywhere. And the Salmon Christ, with his white skin and his blue eyes and his long flowing brown hair, looked nothing at all like Shylock. When Campus Crusade produced the film Jesus in 1979, they didn't want an actor who looked, Je uh, looked Jewish, they wanted an actor who looked like Warner Salmon's head of Christ. There's a direct connection between the Christian de-Judaizing of Christ and the Holocaust and Mike Fried's nightmares. It turns out that theology isn't irrelevant stuff about angels dancing on the head of a pin. Theology is a life and death matter, and for millions of Jews it has been a death matter. And that goes back a very, very long time. Way back in the post-apostolic age, as soon as early Christians entered the Gentile world and tried to leave the Jewish world behind, the process of de-Judaizing was underway. Most theologians didn't want their savior to be a first century Middle Eastern Jew, but a generic human being. The Nicene Fathers decreed that Jesus Christ was the Son of God who was made man, meaning man in general. And none of the usual doctrines of the atonement, whether St. Anselm or Abelard or Christus Victor, does it matter that Jesus was a Jew. I suppose that St. Anselm never even met a Jew. But in the New Testament, it does matter that when God came to dwell among us, he was a specific human being with a specific culture and a specific faith and a specific history. In every sentence of the Gospels, in every sentence of the letter to the Hebrews, in most of the rest of the New Testament, 
it matters that salvation comes from Israel and that Jesus is the Messiah of Israel. The Bible was a huge problem for anti-Semitism in Nazi Germany, the anti-Semitism that created Mike Fried's nightmares. The Nazis created a new Bible that had no Old Testament and that reduced the New Testament by 60% by eliminating every obvious reference to Judaism that wasn't negative. The genealogy in Matthew was the first to go. Jesus was preached as a person of Aryan race on the pretext that the Romans had resettled Galilee with Aryans, what we now call Iran, which is the same word as Aryan. And Jesus was preached as a person who hated Jews and roused the hatred of the Jews in return and was killed as a result. The Christian thing to do, therefore, was to get rid of Jews. That was made clear on Christianacht in 1938, when the German mob smashed the synagogues and the shops owned by Jews and burned the Torah scrolls, and then the Nazi radio network broadcast the play Merchant of Venice. And anti-Semitism was taught by wonderful influential theologians like Gerhard Kittel, whose theological word book you may have used, and Walter Glundmann, whose theological works were still standard texts in German seminaries in the 1990s. All of that was extreme, but it was in line with a centuries-old Christian project of de-Judaizing Christianity and teaching that the important thing about Jesus wasn't that he was Jewish, but that he shared our common humanity. That Christian project was challenged in the 1930s by confessing Christians like Bart and Bonhoeffer, and after World War II, after people really began to realize what Christian teaching had created, it began to be impossible for theologians of any conscience or seriousness to perpetuate the construct of a de-Judaized Jesus. It took a while because senior preachers don't always do their continuing education. So it kept getting preached for a while, but in due course it began to be minimized. But that brings us back to the picture in Exodus 32 of Moses standing before God, pleading with God to remember his promises and covenant, pleading with God to forgive Israel, and persuading God to put away his wrath. This is not the first or last such image in the Old Testament, although it's the most important and the most dramatic. The pattern time and again in the Old Testament is that the people sin, God threatens judgment. A person uh, who has been commissioned by God as a representative of Israel intercedes with God, and God is merciful. Abraham pleaded with God to turn away his wrath from Sodom, the results there were mixed. Samuel twice prays to God in repentance and makes an offering in intercession for Israel. Twice Amos receives a vision of God's destruction of Israel. Twice he pleads for forgiveness and mercy, and twice God turns away his wrath. Jeremiah dares to intercede for a people that are impenitent to a God who is determined to punish. Chapter 15, God tells Jeremiah that even if Moses and Samuel were to intercede, God would not be moved. And yet Jeremiah continues, and Jeremiah, like Jesus, speaks both for Israel and for God. In the fourth servant song of Isaiah, the servant intercedes with God and bears the sin of the people and suffers and dies. And if we want to understand how Jesus understands his own mission, listen to the parable that he tells on his way to the cross. He asks us to picture an orchard with an unfruitful fig tree, and fig tree is a common symbol for Israel. 
The owner tells the gardener that he has decided to tear out the offending fig tree. But the gardener pleads for it, not because the fig tree is deserving, but because the gardener himself promises to do his best to make it fruitful. And it becomes obvious after the resurrection that Jesus is that gardener who has interceded with the owner for the fig tree and will make it flourish with his own blood. We're moving now toward Good Friday. A good preparation for Good Friday is to remember Moses on Mount Sinai, pleading for Israel before God, asking forgiveness for people who have intentionally and dramatically offended God. Jesus on the cross stands in the line of Moses and Amos, of the suffering servant. He is the descendant of David, the king of Jews. He is the Messiah of Israel's God. He pleads on the cross for Israel's forgiveness, and he is not the victim of Jews, but the savior of Jews. His death and then his resurrection aren't the end of Israel, but the regeneration of Israel, the fulfillment of Israel's prophecies. Like Moses, like Jeremiah, like the suffering servant, he represents both God and Israel. Father, forgive them, he says. And in his last breath, as he says, it is finished, he is also saying it is fulfilled. That is the conviction that God has indeed remembered his promises and his covenant, that God has indeed forgiven Israel. Our connection with Jesus isn't his common humanity with us, but our being baptized and grafted into Israel. Grafting is a horticultural process by which two genetically distinct organisms become one, improving vigor, resistance, and productivity. Israel is regenerated. Mike Fried taught me a lot about being a Christian. Israel continues to be the teacher of the church. For the good news that Christ has interceded and continues to intercede for sinners and the good news that we are among the heirs of the covenant. Thanks be to God.